You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Okay, Wyndon, so thank you for coming. And um, I wanted to ask you about your uh, book, From Logos to Bios, Evolutionary Theory in Light of Plato, Aristotle, and Neoplatonism. Yes, thank you very much for inviting me, Richard. Uh, it's, uh, certainly the pleasure is all mine. Hmm. So tell me about this book. What, what uh, led you to come up with the ideas in it, and what is the book uh, about, basically? So, uh, I've long had an interest in uh, the concept of, of evolution. Um, as a mechanism for life deploying on Earth, as it were. Um, but it's only over the past decade or so that I really have been climbing into it in, in some depth. Uh, initially, when I started my doctoral research uh, around 2010, which was done through distance tuition at the University of South Africa while living here in Britain, uh, I was uh, trying to find a way to reconcile uh, the, the uh, Jewish and Christian belief in the uh, creation of the world by God hmm. with the scientific evidence uh, su- suggesting uh, evolution of life, if, if it was possible to uh, to bring those two together. Uh, of course, many people would say it's not possible. You're either a creationist or an evolutionist, which I know that in the United States especially is quite a ongoing debate. Hmm. And uh, I was planning to use the work of the, the early Christian theologians, uh, both Greek and Latin, as the main... Uh, a frame of reference for that, but I uh, decided to, to uh, provide some Greek philosophical um, introduction as a, as a starting point. Yeah. But then the, the, more I, the more I climbed into the Greek philosophers uh, of the, pre- the pre-Christian era, as well as the Neoplatonists, uh, who of course came a bit later, the more I discovered uh, fascinating insights um, in cosmology and in biology. And, yeah. uh, in fact, so much so that I decided to focus on, on Greek philosophy as, uh, to provide the framework for an analysis and a discussion of evolutionary theory. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I guess I'm just going to interject my thoughts. You know, why not? But, um, you know, I, I look around and I see, for instance, you know, a billion Christians or Catholics, and they believe 100% in what they believe. And at the same time, you know, you may have, let's say, a billion Muslims that believe what they believe, you know, 100%, and then millions of Jews, etc. And I, I get the feeling that, why would one of them be right and the others be wrong? I think that everyone, all, you know, all the religious sects are looking at the same thing, but they're looking at it through a, uh, I guess, a, a foggy, foggy glass or through a, a beaded curtain, and they can't really see what's there, but they, they see glimpses of the same thing. Is my feeling. I don't know what your thought is on that. Uh, yes, um, there's an old um, in Indian philosophy. They've long held uh, the image of. Uh, a couple of men were blindfolded and placed around an elephant, and they were asked to touch different parts of the elephant. And the one touching the trunk uh, said that he was feeling a, a long, uh, thick rope. The mm. one touching the, uh, asked, 
touching the tusks, that it's uh, feeling a, a long uh, pointed spear. Uh, the one touching the ear said it was feeling a long, a long sorry, a large um, fan. Um, the one uh, touching the, the tail of the elephant said that it, it, uh, it, it's definitely a, a fly swatter. And the one touching the leg of the elephant said this is a huge uh, rounded uh, column. And uh, they started arguing and almost came to blows until the blindfolds were taken off and they were shown that they were all touching different parts of the same elephant. Hmm. So the, the moral of, of that story is the, the importance of perspective, uh, that uh, people often look at the same thing from different perspectives, uh, hmm. but they tend, to, they tend to identify their perspective with the truth as such, right. which is not, sadly not always the case. So I absolutely agree that in all of these religious ways you men- mentioned and some others, uh, there are important elements of truth. Um, that uh, the, the Almighty has uh, provided in His uh, in His mercy to uh, to try and lead us back to Him. Hmm. Uh, it doesn't mean that they are all the same or all equal. Uh, there's no. Um, it's not necessary for that anyway. Uh, but they are different means of of returning, I believe, to our source. Um, so so uh, there's really no reason why people of different faiths should uh, should uh, be in conflict over it. But sadly, much of human history has been exactly that. Yeah, yeah. Well, what, what, so you said you've discovered some fascinating things by studying uh, the Greek philosophy. What what are some of those things? Um, I would say to begin with uh, the important insights by Pythagoras and his schools, uh, school rather, sorry, um, emphasizing the mathematical uh, foundations of uh, the cosmos, of the reality that we live in, um, the importance of uh, numbers and the importance of geometrical figures, which uh, Plato then took, and uh, because he studied with the Pythagoreans in, in Italy as a young man, hmm. and he then drew it into his uh, great dialogue, the Timaeus, which is about the creation of the world by the Demiurge, uh, the Demiurge being Plato's term for the uh, divine craftsman, which the new Platonists later identified with the universal intellect. Um, Heraclitus also very important, who said that everything in this uh, world that we live in is in a state of flux, uh, and that nothing is permanent, everything is changing all the time which Plato then applied to the sensible world, in other words, this physical world in which we live, which we can approach uh, with the senses. But beyond or above this physical world in which we live, there's also a a metaphysical world, which Plato called the intelligible world, because we can access it through the intellect. Hmm. And uh, this lower world, in in fact, received its uh, reality from that higher world. And it was um, uh, Plotinus, founder of Neoplatonism, who later explained uh, how this worked. but between uh, Plato and Plotinus came the enormously uh, important figure of um, Aristotle, who became the first Western thinker to um, analyze uh, biological phenomena uh, among plants and animals, which he collected and studied over many, many years, and uh, thereby laid the foundations for biology as a science in the Western world. Um, and also importantly from Aristotle, uh, keeping in mind that he studied with Plato for 20 years uh, before founding his own school, uh, was to emphasize the importance of soul over matter, uh, mm. and the concept that uh, this, uh, the matter is actually formed by soul. Uh, without it, the matter is unformed, and it can't, it can't even be perceived by us. And again, the new Platonists would draw that into their huge synthesis uh, from the 3rd century um, AD onwards, by Plotinus and Jamblichus uh, and Proclus especially. So, okay, so... What are some of the implications that you've seen for evolution? Do you have any clues that the ancient people, uh, I don't know, had insights into it that we don't? Or just by looking at all this history, do you see things that are coming together? Uh, No, the Greeks were part of a a metaphysical tradition, which is actually thousands of years old. 
which uh, became expressed in other parts of the world, uh, very much, for example, in classical Indian philosophy, uh, what some people call Hinduism, uh, which is actually a colonial term. Uh, also in some of the ancient uh, Chinese philosophy, such as the Tao Te Ching, which is immensely important in uh, cosmology also, and also in some of the Mesopotamian and Egyptian uh, schools. Um, all of them uh, emphasize the, the importance of the transcendent uh, dimension of reality. Mm. Uh, the fact that uh, this level of existence that we are on is not the only level of reality, that there are powers and influences uh, above us or beyond us which have a decisive influence on this level. Whether those powers are called gods or spirits or angels or whatever, these are different names pertaining to that higher transcendent reality or to different aspects thereof. Um, and then uh, some of them had the, 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 the gift or the talent, like Aristotle, to take this metaphysical tradition and to apply it to the, the world of living things. And that enabled Plato, Aristotle uh, to um, establish a scale of nature, as it is called, in which all all that exists or all that is real is arranged in a vast hierarchy with uh, God, which Aristotle prefers to as the prime mover at the top and going then going down through humans and other animals and plants and microorganisms right down to the level of, of matter. So what is in the hierarchy? It, it, so people are in the hierarchy, but our intellect, is that at the next level above and then is the metaphysical above that or are they at the same level or... The scale of nature that um, Aristotle referred to uh, pertains uh, specifically to um, to living uh, entities, uh, ranging from simple uh, micro or the tiniest forms of plants and animals that uh, were visible at the time, um, upwards to the uh, to God or to the prime mover, as, as the, which is Aristotle's favorite uh, term for it. Uh, but uh, going further, uh, other thinkers have uh, expanded this. Uh, both upwards and downwards. So when talking about God, there are actually different levels of the divinity, as Plotinus and the other Neoplatonists have explained. At the highest level, there is the one. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the Matrix forms that came out about 15 years ago or so, uh, but there's a figure in the call the one, uh, which uh, becomes the savior of Zion, the humans, again, the warring with the machines. Mm. And actually, there are a lot of terms in those forms uh, which are obtained from classical philosophy and, the, and uh, theology, mm. uh, which is one of the reasons why I really enjoy watching it. Uh, so the one is the, the highest level of uh, reality in the uh, uh, Greek metaphysical tradition, uh, which would be analogous to the Indian concept of Brahman as the supreme godhead. And then from the, the one there flows the, um, the, the intellect, the divine intellect, which in Greek is the nous, uh, spelled N-O-U-S, uh, and from the news flows the world soul, and the world soul contains all of the individual souls of uh, humans and um, animals and plants. Mm. Uh, so it, it is uh, uh, all-embracing cosmology. Um, and it's interesting that in much of modern uh, physics, uh, theoretical physics, um, from the rise of quantum mechanics especially, uh, the, the gross materialism, which became so much part of, of the modern scientific project from around the, the 17th century onwards, yeah. um, has become more refined. Uh, and there are uh, an increasing number of, of uh, scientists, well, there have been over the past uh, 100 years or so, uh, who have maintained that uh, the findings of, of uh, the physical or the natural sciences are very much compatible with these traditional teachings about the higher uh, reality 
than this specifically physical level that we are living in. Well, how would, so what's an example of that? How would you say that seeing that there is quantum mechanics and there is quantum behavior, which is uh, pretty much inexplicable, or, you know, it's hard to understand. How does that tie into this uh, idea of the one? Well, from one angle, one could say it uh, um, uh, underlines the importance of, of mystery, the fact that not everything can be rationally explained, which is something that, that most of the spiritual traditions have, have been uh, uh, proclaiming all along. Mm. Mm. Uh, that reason is a very good thing. You know, it's, it's wrong to be anti-rational, like, the, for example, some religious fundamentalists, I believe, are by rejecting reason uh, completely and saying that everything is just faith, for example. Right. Um, that, that's another extreme which, has, uh, which, which uh, is unacceptable and wrong. So reason is immensely important, and it's in fact uh, a God-given faculty, uh, not only for our daily survival, but for uh, uh, the, the practice of mathematics, for example, uh, architecture, uh, music, all of that relies on, on the use of, of uh, the rational faculty. Uh, but there is always, there, there has to be the recognition that uh, there are other levels of reality which are um, supra-rational, is perhaps the best word um, mm. to use for it. Certainly, certainly not irrational. Mm. Um, I mean, what's, what's your general feeling, <clears throat> you know, if you look at all of scientific knowledge right now, do you estimate that we understand, I don't know, 1% of everything we could understand, or are we much closer than that, or... You know, what are your thoughts around how far that, uh, you know, our intellects can take us, and again, how far have we come? Well, I don't think I have enough knowledge to make an authoritative statement uh, on that, I'm afraid. Uh, but I tend to think that there's still an enormous amount left uh, for that, that we should learn. Um, and contrary to the prevailing view, for example, uh, towards the end of the 19th century, the beginning of uh, the 20th century, when many scientists and others uh, believed that uh, we have reached very much uh, the, the pinnacle of what can be done. Um, mm. And of course, we saw in the 20th century what could happen you know, when, when certain kinds of knowledge can be taken to extremes or, or purported knowledge uh, in the name of this or that or the other, you know, what human beings are capable of doing, not only to each other, but to the, to the planet and to the rest of the biosphere, to the animal and plant kingdoms. Um, so I think we have to be careful whenever anyone claims that we now have uh, total knowledge or final knowledge or a final understanding. Uh, I, I think on this side of the grave, um, um, it's not uh, fully accessible to us. Mm. So what, well, what kind of implications come from the things that you've, uh, you know, what personal implications have come for you from what you've studied? Well, I was pleasantly surprised to see how, um, how much... Um, it has been possible to draw insights from classical philosophy uh, into a discussion of, of um, the evolution of life on Earth, um, especially the alternative theories of evolution, which I came across uh, during my research, which, and which I was uh, very much unfamiliar with, such as uh, evolution according to natural law or nomogenesis, and also directed evolution or orthogenesis, uh, and of course convergent evolution. Those are the three uh, chapters that I discuss uh, at some length in the book. Um, so that was, a, a, as I said, a, a pleasant surprise. And uh, what also came as a bit of a revelation almost um, was to uh, realize how strong the misconception is uh, among many people, I think, including uh, thinking people, uh, by conflating evolution with Darwinism. Mm. Uh, because to most people, as far as I know, if you mention the word evolution, they immediately think of Darwinism. Right. Um, and uh, that is not accidental. I believe that uh, the Darwinists have 
working hard over the past, um, um, since around the 1930s, 1940s, when the so-called modern evolutionary synthesis uh, came to be established through the work of Dobzhansky and um, uh, Simpson and a few other scientists, uh, they have actually, actively been uh, striving uh, to obtain a virtual monopoly on evolutionary thought and any discussion of evolution, uh, which is sad, but it is not totally unexpected. Um, it seems to happen in, in all kinds of scientific knowledge, as um, uh, I think it was Thomas Keane who wrote the book The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, uh, which has become somewhat of a classic in, in the philosophy of science, hmm. where he shows that in various fields of uh, knowledge, um, certain models uh, become almost paradigmatic, and their followers find it very difficult to admit of any evidence or arguments to the contrary, um, and that science, therefore, doesn't grow gradually or incrementally, uh, as the Darwinist belief uh, life on Earth unfolds, but through leaps and bounds and uh, through, through revolutions, as it were, in, uh, in knowledge. And um, the, the Darwinists, I believe, have been um, uh, working and striving, either intentionally or otherwise, uh, to obtain such a monopoly on evolutionary thought. Yeah, definitely. I mean, and I wonder why they, they're so hell-bent on uh, describing it as, you know, random mutation and natural selection and life coming from nothingness and why there's, it seems to be there, there's, there's this fear to include anything metaphysical in this and to, to even say that there's anything that's maybe unknowable. That's right. Uh, if you uh, consider, for example, the issue of constraints on variation, uh, which again counters the Darwinian insistence that, that variations are, uh, are uh, potentially infinite, uh, and therefore anything can be transformed into anything else if given enough time uh, through, through natural selection. Um, uh, if you look at important neo-Darwinian writers like um, Theodosius Dobzhansky and uh, Ernst Meyer, uh, both of whom were among the, the leading uh, thinkers in that school in the 20th century. In early editions of their work, they recognized the existence of, of uh, constraints, uh, whether physical or biochemical or otherwise. Um, but in later editions of the same works, those references came to be omitted altogether hmm. uh, because it, it runs contrary to the Darwinian insistence on infinite variability. So it shows that even, that even uh, great minds like those, uh, Dobzhansky especially I'm, especially I'm very fond of, um, are also susceptible to, to uh, all to human, uh, I suppose, uh, temptations. Yeah, it's weird by by saying that things are random and life came from nothing. I mean, it kind of um, it closes your mind off to asking a lot of questions. It's it's just an odd way to uh, I don't know. It's just an odd odd way of thinking to me. Um, what do you think? I mean, where do you think life came from, and and why is there life at all? That is actually something I would like to work on uh, in a future project. It's something that's been going uh, around in my mind for some time now, uh, something titled uh, From Mind to Life. Uh, if one takes, the again, the classical Greek concept of uh, the universal intellect or mind, uh, the news which Anaxagoras first introduced into the Western world and which was then built upon by the, the Platonists, uh, Plato and uh, the new Platonists very much so, um, it would be, a, I think, a fascinating journey to, to try and work out um, by means of evidence from uh, molecular biology and biochemistry uh, if it can, in fact, be shown in some way uh, how this uh, transcendent mind or intellect actually um, becomes manifested in the organic world. 
So uh, at the moment, I'm afraid I don't have uh, uh, solid or, or strong answers to that, but it is something that I would like to investigate. Well, I mean, you know, it, it could just be your your feeling or, or your belief now. I mean, I know scientists don't like to say much, you know, based on belief, but um, mm-hmm. hey, you know, I, I might as well ask the really difficult questions. So, I mean, <laughs> what? Yeah. Wait. No, uh, 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 the, what you mentioned earlier about closing off, you know, people closing off their minds to... to um, investigating uh, other possibilities uh, regarding the origin of life, for example. Um, it's strange that it's um, um, scientists who have always uh, um, claimed to be the defenders of freedom of thought uh, against uh, the uh, oppression from, from religions or uh, uh, some other authorities with, uh, being, with being too um, doctrinaire, for example, that uh, one still finds in, in, in uh, some quarters uh, scientific thinkers who are very much close to, to any kind of, of alternative voices, uh, even when based on solid empirical uh, research. Uh, for example, if one looks at the, the extended evolutionary synthesis, um, of which uh, Perry Marshall's work is very much in, uh, uh, making an important contribution to it, I believe, mm. um, the, the alternative uh, or the, the additional mechanisms uh, we're not not seeing them blind at themselves blind at uh, uh, random variations plus natural selection being the, the twin pillars of neo Darwinian orthodoxy, but also incorporating um, important mechanisms of uh, adaptation on the cellular level, like uh, horizontal gene transfer and epigenetics and uh, symbiogenesis. That these things are, are not even considered by many of the so-called mainstream biologists. Right. Uh, for example, being completely ignored by, by Richard Dawkins, who's probably the leading Darwinian uh, writer of our time, when he wrote his uh, book in 2009 to celebrate 150 years since the publication of The Origin of Species. So mm. none of these additional mechanisms are even considered by him. No, that's true. Um, so, I mean, where, where do you think life originated from and how did it originate? You know, what is your thought just so far? I know it's you know it's going to take more and more and more research to get anywhere, but what's your current uh, belief? I'm quite an admirer of, of Stephen Jay Gould uh, with his theory of punctuated equilibrium, um, as is probably evident from from the discussion there of in my book. Uh, although I disagree with with um, Stephen on um, on matters such as the radical contingency, which he very much emphasised, um, he viewed all life as basically the result of of um, accidents and. Uh, little more than a contingent uh, model, um, so that every time, as to use his expression, if the type of life had to be replayed, it would produce a totally different outcome. Um, so on that uh, issue, I disagree with him, uh, agreeing more with Simon Conway Morris that that uh, evolution of life uh, appears to be fairly, you know, perhaps not 100% predictable, but uh, uh, to, to some extent uh, and it is, and uh, it could even be viewed as inevitable. But regarding the origins thereof, um, uh, it's uh, pretty much a mystery to me, I have to confess. Um, but I think the, the model of punctuated equilibrium uh, is much more feasible than the Darwinian model of, of gradual incremental change over billions and billions of years. Uh, for example, if one looks at um, uh, the, the, the history of life on Earth, uh, from the first appearance of life forms approximately 3.5 billion years ago in the form of, of single cellular organisms, uh, for almost uh, three billion years following that, um, nothing much happened in terms of morphology. Uh, there was only an increase from simple, from single cellular to uh, very simple multicellular organisms. 
but it was only from approximately the uh, Cambrian, ex Cambrian explosion onwards, uh, 530 uh, million years uh, ago, uh, that life re really uh, seemed to, to flourish and, and uh, virtually explode in all directions. But again, not, not, not totally. Uh, even, even that explosion, there uh, were still um, uh, certain pathways to be followed, uh, uh, the, the developmental constraints, for example. Um, so the, the model is, is one of uh, long periods where not much happens except um, um, variations on a given theme, uh, punctuated by bursts, uh, creative bursts, as it were, uh, with major flowerings of organic life appeared. Uh, the same happened in the Devonian with plant life again, approximately 200 million years after the Cambrian explosion. Uh, so that is one model I think that, that uh, should be seriously considered when, uh, in consider, uh, when investigating um, the development of life on Earth. Uh, but as to the, the absolute beginning, the, the very first appearance of, of organic life, um, um, I honestly don't think we, we know enough to, to make uh, Dr. Ney's statements about that yet. But it's yeah. certainly uh, thing that's something to uh, uh, something I think that needs investigating and uh, pondering. Yeah, I wonder strange things like you know, is all life just an experiment that uh, you know from God? And you know, what what were the dinosaurs, for instance? Was that an it was that an early experiment, and then uh, you know that failed, and then things changed from there? I just you, know, you just wonder strange things like that. Uh, yes, and of course there are always uh, all kinds of alternative theories uh, that. Uh, um, that life on Earth could, uh, or at least some of it, have originated in other parts of the, of the uh, not necessarily our solar system, but other parts of the same galaxy, and have been transported here either through solar winds or meteorites or even through uh, intelligent activity. There are, all, there are lots of speculation uh, going on about that, which I'm sure you, you have come across some of that uh, uh, over the years. Um, and Certainly not all of it, but I think some of that um, could also be something worth uh, worth exploring and investigating. In other words, we shouldn't be totally uh, closed up against that possibility. I would say. How about where uh, where things are heading? Any insights into what humans may evolve into, if anything, or is this it? I'm I'm afraid I'm not very really positive about the, the prospects of of um, humankind's future. Um, at least not in the I would say perhaps the years and decades flying ahead. Um, to a large extent, I accept the traditional doctrine of cosmic cycles, um, as explained, for example, by some of the, the Greek and Indian writers, uh, the idea that uh, uh, civilizations go through huge cycles, um, termed, uh, for example, the Golden Age, uh, Silver Age, or Bronze Age, and uh, the current uh, uh, Iron or Metal Age, uh, which in uh, Sanskrit is called uh, the Kali Yuga, which also means the Dark Age. Um, and where that goes, uh, uh, with each of those stages goes an increase in the, one could almost say, the density of matter, matter becoming more and more dense and opaque, um, whereas in earlier times uh, uh, there was a, a clearer sense of the spiritual and especially of the transcendent, uh, certainly not among everyone, but, but, uh, but among uh, quite a number of people in different parts of the world. Um, so due to that and the fact that, that uh, the the world that we live in has become very much what a philosopher like John Gray, um, one, one of my favorite living philosophers, calls uh, the Anthropocene. There are, there are simply so many humans on the planet at the moment uh, that we, we're virtually smothering the planet and the biosphere. Um, and whether technology as such will be able to, um, 
to compensate for compensate for that uh, to uh, provide a, some kind of a meaningful future to um, certainly not all humans. We way beyond the point I think of uh, trying to uh, provide a, a decent life to all all people on Earth. There are simply too many. Um, but whether technology can compensate even partially remains to be seen. Do you think that people may end up creating um, creating life itself in the form of artificial intelligence that is sentient or merging with machines and changing ourselves to the point where we become a new species? Again, I would say one, one can never discount such a possibility uh, if one looks at what, what has already been done over the past couple of centuries, uh, scientifically and technolo- technologically, compared to, say, the uh, the 16th or 17th century, when the modern uh, scientific uh, project uh, more or less began, uh, the tremendous changes and innovations that have taken place and which are still taking place. So um, I suppose it's uh, it's best to keep an open mind about it. Um, but as a as a more or less traditional thinker, I would like to uh, to caution um, that with um, artificial intelligence, uh, robotics, and so on. Um, Will it always be possible to draw a line between the between the human and the machine? Uh, where does the one end and the other one begin? And then there's of course the the, the thorny old issue of of so uh, can uh, can anything robotic or anything with artificial intelligence uh, possess a soul? Um, not saying it is totally impossible. Also keeping in mind that there are different different levels of soul, as Aristotle also explained in his work. Um, it is not a it's not a monolithic. Um, concept. So uh, there are certainly going to be um, some, uh, probably some amazing developments in those directions. Um, you obviously know far more about it than, than I do, as, as I've seen from you. No, no. I just uh, I just ask questions, you know. <laughs> uh, so uh, on the whole, I'm afraid I'm not, uh, certainly not uh, a utopian, or I don't hold a utopian view of the future, probably more dystopian. Uh, but then again, the no, uh, the, the higher powers, which are at work in the universe, uh, including the human world, um, I think one one shouldn't um, uh, discount or uh, omit those powers either. You know, <laughs> a lot can still happen, uh, which which can still be positive uh, and uh, beautiful uh, in in the time to come. Yeah, I mean, you know, things like where where does consciousness reside in our bodies, and what you know, is it just an emergent property of a certain number of neurons structured in a certain way? I mean, there's just there's so many questions that are just, I don't know how anyone's going to answer them. Yes, so the, of course the, um, the standard scientific explanation nowadays would be that it is an emergent property, as, as you mentioned, um, and that the mind is no more than an epiphenomenon of the physical brain. Um, but uh, there are uh, traditional uh, philosophers and even some scientists who argue that uh, the case is actually far more complicated than that um, and that there is a two-way interaction taking place uh, between our material bodies and uh, uh, the spiritual or transcendent world, whatever name is given to it. Um, so uh, personally also I would like to think that the origins of consciousness certainly come from above and not um, certainly not exclusively from below. Yeah, when you think about you know us, okay, well maybe the, uh, the mind is an emergent property of this super complicated structure of the brain, but what about in you know, uh, lesser creatures, I guess, you know, sad to call them that, but what about single cells? What about, uh, again, you know, I don't know, dogs and cats. What about, uh, you know, other creatures? Do they have a mind and consciousness? And how does it emerge? Yes, uh, I would like to think that uh, at least uh, most of the animal kingdom 
and perhaps even uh, much of the plant kingdom uh, possess some some degree of consciousness. Um, and there are even uh, some uh, studies that have been done in that regard. For example, uh, uh, plants helping each other uh, to to fight against um, uh, attacks from either a, a pest uh, or some other uh, enemy uh, threatening their well-being um, by secreting chemicals through their roots uh, to warn each other, and then uh, the same chemicals uh, kill the plants which does which don't take part in this warning process, <laughs> which is quite an amazing uh, um, action for uh, for something which many people view as as virtually or, or as, as almost lifeless. Uh, and there, even there, we can again learn from from the Greeks and especially from Aristotle, who said that there are different levels of soul in dwelling living things. So plants, for example, have a, what he called a nutritive soul, um, which enables uh, nutrition uh, and also growth and reproduction. Animals have that, and also have a sensitive soul, which enables sense perception through the five senses, uh, but also things like memory and imagination. While humans have both of those two levels, and also a rational soul which of course enables uh, reasoning and intellection. Um, so uh, I would uh, have no doubt that uh, all living things um, participate to some degree in, in this, uh, the higher spiritual realities, which is of course another powerful argument against um, uh, mistreatment of, of animals and even of plants, and uh, I think a horrendous indictment of what humankind has been doing to the biosphere over thousands of years. Yeah, you wonder what, you know, I don't know, is what constitutes life? You know, what about a virus that, you know, in its dormant state, it seems to do nothing, but when it's activated, it seems to have purpose. It's just weird. You know, what about, uh, I don't know, things like cancer. Cancer seems to have all the hallmarks of life. The only one that it seems to fail is that it kills its host, but otherwise it tries to stop itself from being destroyed. It proliferates. I mean, it's just, it's weird. All these examples of, you know, what is life and why does it even have purpose and drive and, and life is the only thing that seems to resist entropy and the second law of thermodynamics. I, I know of nothing else that, that tries to uh, decrease entropy in itself, you know? That, that's right, absolutely. Uh, and life seems to just keep on uh, 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 multiplying in, um, you know, in its manifestations and, and uh, forms. Um, so it uh, pretty much seems to run counter to, to the law of entropy, uh, which is another fascinating subject, I think, that, um, that should be explored. Do you feel like you've had any breakthroughs that were just really big to you in your mind? Like, what what do you feel like the biggest breakthroughs of your research into Greek philosophy and and all this stuff have been for you personally? I think uh, the the way how uh, the, the, the Greek philosophy uh, has uh, convinced me of the the um, existence and the, the massive importance of these higher metaphysical worlds in his various levels, as explained by so many of the great thinkers, and much of which, of course, has been drawn into uh, various religious, religious traditions. Uh, Christians and uh, Jews and Muslims have all used um, concepts from Greek philosophy to explain their uh, uh, theological teachings. Um, so that, that has been a great comfort, I would think, the intellectual comfort, uh, the fact that one can push one's intellectual activity, as it were, uh, to the limits uh, without in any way threatening uh, belief in God, for example, uh, which for me is um, paradigmatic, um, regardless of what name is given to that God um, in different traditions. But as ultimate reality, um, it's perhaps uh, one of the best ways of describing it. Um, and um, then also uh, what was uh, 
a great bonus to me uh, through these research is the discovery of these alternative um, ways of looking at the evolution of life on Earth and the fact that it doesn't only have to be understood in Darwinian terms, uh, which I think has been a real problem to many people. Uh, to, to have to choose between divine creation on the one hand, uh, literally speaking, as the literal creationists would have it, or to see evolution in purely mechanistic and material terms as only random variation plus natural selection. And the weird thing is, too, the view of the, the neo-Darwinists you know, provides no comfort. I mean, there's just no comfort in that view at all. You know, and if you feel like, for instance, when you die and nothing happens to you and you just go to nothing and, uh, you know, there is no God or any of that, like, what's the point of not just killing anyone you want to kill? What's the point of love and of having children and any of this stuff? And what's the point of life? And they came from nothingness and there's no deterministic, you know, there's, there's no goal, there's no nothing, then that's a horrible way to look at things, I think. Absolutely. Uh, and uh, the famous Russian novelist uh, Dostoevsky uh, wrote about that in his great novel, The Brothers Karamazov, uh, through the mouth of Ivan, one of the, the three brothers, uh, who argued uh, that if God does not exist, everything is permitted, which is absolutely true. If there is no higher point of reference above ourselves, uh, then who is to say that this is right and that is wrong? Uh, then almost anything could be rationalized or justified, any kind of atrocity or misconduct or whatever. Exactly right. Why not just go for whatever comforts you can get right now, and nothing else matters because nothing matters. Yeah, it's terrible. That's, that's right. That's right. No, I, I find it a, a bleak and, and devastating <laughs> worldview. <laughs> and I, I, you... actually those who, I actually pity those who, uh, uh, who suffer from it, um, you know, that, that haven't been able to... Uh, um, that's come to a more or a fuller, I would say, um, view of reality. What about? Uh, do you have a desire, or do, you know, have you seen a desire to connect with the metaphysical, with this other level? It seems like that would inspire a great desire like that for people to, you know, even if you do believe, for instance, in God, how do you find evidence of it? So I guess connecting through the metaphysical level would do that for you, hopefully. For, for me, one of the strongest ways of connecting with that higher world is music, and it has been for many, many years. And specifically what, what most people call uh, classical music, uh, perhaps more formally the Western art music, um, but I don't deny that it can also take place in some kinds of folk music, and certainly in some kinds of, of um, religious music, uh, liturgical music, sacred music, and so on. Um, in fact, it's one of the, the most powerful forces which has been keeping me going over, over decades. Um, used to listen to uh, Mozart or Beethoven or Bach or Brahms or uh, Rachmaninoff uh, to, uh, to, to inspire, uh, to console, uh, to motivate, um, all these things that can take us to, to a higher level. Um, so I would recommend, uh, certainly recommend that to anyone who isn't already um, experiencing that. And in fact, in my next manuscript, uh, all being well, uh, there's a section precisely on that, on the, the metaphysical dimension of uh, of music um, and also some other things, but uh, uh, music uh, imminently. Well, it seems like people try to access the metaphysical, like you said, through music, through hallucinogens, through meditation, through spirituality. I mean, I guess people are reaching for it in many, many ways. Uh, yes, uh, but uh, I think a distinction should be made. Uh, there are ways which are uh, uh, conducive to uh, more or perhaps higher spirituality for a human person. Uh, but some of the, the ways that have been put forward um, are not necessarily uh, upbuilding. They could be more destructive. For example, uh, uh, drug addiction. Um, uh, uh, it might bring a momentary uh, experience.
experience of access to those higher realities. Uh, but uh, as far as I know, uh, uh, they tend to have negative consequences, uh, which tend to be uh, more destructive than anything else. Yeah, I understand. Uh, I'm just saying that people seem to search for the metaphysical in many ways. Yes, yes. And uh, for me, that, that, that striving, uh, I think it was Viktor Frankl, the, the great psychologist, who, said, who uh, the title of his book, Man's Search for Meaning, um, that we are always searching for, for something beyond ourselves, uh, which for me is, is one of the, the surest uh, 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 pieces of evidence that there is, in fact, a higher uh, reality, because it's, it's unlikely, I think, that so many people over so, uh, over so many ages in so many different parts of the world uh, could all have suffered from the same illusion or delusion, you know, as the, the hardline materialist would say it is. And they're, they're striving towards, uh, towards something more, something greater, something beyond ourselves. Well, very good. <clears throat> so what's, what's the best way for uh, folks to find out more about you and where can they get your book? Uh, the, the, from Locos to Bios is available at um, Amazon in many uh, different countries and also some uh, uh, high street stores like uh, Strand Books in New York I know about and there could be some others. Um, I'm now at work on the next manuscript uh, for which I, received, I have received a publication offer from another uh, U.S. publisher uh, in which I discuss certain important themes um, from a combined perspective of Greek philosophy and uh, traditional Christian theology, both Greek and Latin. Um, so uh, if anyone is interested in reading this uh, uh, book uh, that you have kindly mentioned, uh, I suppose Amazon uh, would be the easiest way to obtain it online. Okay. Well, very good. Well, why not? Thank you for coming, and I appreciate it. And, uh I get to ask you the impossible questions, but why not, you know? <laughs> yes, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm sorry if I couldn't uh, answer too many of them, uh, but it's been a great honor for me to be on your podcast, Richard, and I wish yeah. you all of the best for the future. Very good, very good. You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Thank you.